Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Thanks for being here and thanks for worshiping with us uh, today. Uh, just, a, just under two weeks ago, our oldest son, Jay, got his driver's license. Yes, so now you know how to pray for us. <laughs> the good news is, honestly, we're, we're, uh, it's, it's been, it was an exciting thing and we're very proud of him. He's doing, he's doing well. But it does, as a parent, as a father, it does cause you to pray, right? If you just have those moments. You're like, oh, this is great, but oh, Lord, help us all, right? That's kind of the, the feeling that you have. Uh, in, the, in the process of this last couple of weeks, I ran across a story that I'll just share with you. It's a story about a, a dad who was a pastor whose son got his license. And the son who got his license came to his dad and said, Dad, I'd like to talk with you, if I can, about the use of our car and the dad says, okay, um, son, why don't you step into my study and we'll have a little chat. And so sitting down with his son, he says to him, okay, here's the deal. I, there's a couple things that I want you to do. I want you to get those grades up. I want you to read your Bible every day. And I want you to get a haircut. Those are the three things. So the son says, okay. And a little over a month later, the son comes back to his dad and says, dad, um, again, I'd like to talk with you about the use of the car. So the dad again says, okay, come on into my study, sits him down and says, hey, you know what, son? I'm really proud of you. You have gotten your grades up. Way to go. I'm also really proud of you because you've been disciplined. You've been reading your Bible every day, but you haven't gotten a haircut. The son pauses for a moment and says, well, dad, I've been looking at the Bible and, uh, Samson never cut his hair. He, he, he had long hair. He did cut his hair. It wasn't good, right? He had long hair. And Moses had long hair. Noah had long hair. Jesus even had long hair. Dad looks at him and says, well, you're right, son. But all of them walked everywhere they wanted to go. <laughs> so dad wins again. All right. <laughs> Thanks for letting me share with you. Hey, we're going to do a study today, a continuous study. And if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I like to give you a heads up warning so you can find your way there. If you didn't bring a Bible, hopefully you received the handout on your way in. has the passage printed for you. But we're going through a series right now called Unstuck. And the whole thesis behind this is that all of us face challenges in life. And when we face those challenges, it can cause us to feel stuck when we hit certain challenges. But um, that's the bad news. The good news is, of course, that we have a God who wants to help us move forward when we feel stuck, that Jesus wants to walk with us. He doesn't abandon us. He wants to walk with us and helps us help us move forward as we put our faith and trust in him. And so that's part of what we want to do is say, okay, Jesus, help us in these challenge areas of our life that we all run up against. Now, this last week, if you were here, you know that I, I shared with you that I tend to be a naturally optimistic person, that that's just a part of just my makeup. I just tend to see things very optimistically. And this, in fact, has gotten me in trouble on many occasions. For instance, um, I have at times been known to be overly optimistic when it comes to how far I can go on a single tank of gas. You laugh. Well, what happens when you're a little overly optimistic on how far you can get on a single tank of gas? What happens? Yeah, you run out of gas, you get stuck, and you walk. 
That's it. Now, here's the other thing. What happens when you don't learn your lesson the first time? God, in, in just this funny way, has this way of kind of bringing it back up to your life so that if you didn't learn it the first time, you learn it again. Ever been there before? I've been there before. In fact, those moments that I've had, these moments of being a little overly optimistic about the gas tank happen to be typically on a family vacation. And yes, and I mean, no surprisingly, um, those moments don't create real close family bonding, warm moments, okay? That's, it really did, it doesn't happen that way. In fact, uh, those are the moments that I personally was not nominated for dad of the year, or certainly not nominated for husband of the year, because when you're driving my wife, she is the opposite of me, um, because she'll see the, the needle on the gas tank, and it, as soon as it gets below half, she starts to panic, okay? And so we're just a little bit different in how we approach things, and I've certainly have gotten myself into trouble a few times in those scenarios. But God and his, his care and his grace and his goodness Um, When we don't wisely respond the first time, he gives us more opportunities to learn, doesn't he? The sad thing is sometimes we don't always learn the first time, and and we find ourselves getting stuck. Now, here's the reality in life. Sometimes we find ourselves getting stuck because of our own decisions, because of the choices that we make, because of our own um, whatever decisions to be independent, our own ignorance, our own errors. We can find ourselves getting stuck. But there are times in life when we can find ourselves getting stuck, not because of anything of our own doing. We just find ourselves facing a challenge that can knock us down, and it can cripple us, and it can make us and leave us feeling stuck. And today, we're going to talk about one of those kinds of challenges. We're going to talk about one of those kinds of challenges that can cause us to feel, feel very stuck, the challenge of rejection. We're going to be talking about the challenge of rejection. And for some of you, the moment I say the challenge of rejection, you're like immediately, instantly, you're like, I get it. I know that one. And it's kind of funny because rejection starts early, doesn't it? For for many of you, you have a distinct memory of feeling rejected on the schoolyard growing up as a kid. And those feelings haven't left over time, have they? Some of you know what it's like to feel rejected in your own family. Perhaps you didn't grow up with a father. You had an absent father. Or perhaps you had a parent who was present, but the message that you received growing up was they don't want to have anything to do with you. And even the thought of it just brings back up, even decades later perhaps for you, those feelings of rejection and the pain that is still present in your life. Some of you know What it's like to be rejected by a mate. Someone who says, I'm done. That's it. I'm out. Even after 15, 20, 30 years of marriage. Some of you know what it's like to be pushed aside by a child. Some of you know what it's like to be rejected by a friendship. You have a friendship and all of a sudden they ghost you. That is, they were there and then all of a sudden they're gone. And you don't even know why. That it just... Like a a switch, it just flipped off and the friendship was gone and it still left you going, what happened there? Some of you know what it's like to go through a painful breakup. To break up with someone and of course when you're breaking up with someone, they might say to you, hey, it's it's not about you, it's about me. Um, But at the same time they're saying that, you're thinking to yourself, but it feels a lot like me right now. 
And they might just say, you know, it's just, you know, I need, it's a lot of stuff going on right now. And, it, and you know, it's, it, I need to date Jesus. And you're like, got it. But I, I, it still feels like you're rejecting me. That's kind of what it comes down to. And it can happen with our family, with our friendships, but also can happen at work. Perhaps you've been in a circumstance where you've had your job eliminated and you no longer are, are working there. And they use terms like downsizing, which um, doesn't really help you feel any better, does it? And then on the other side of things, when you go back to the interview to try to find a new job, you get to the job and they say to you, you know what, you're just too overqualified for this position. And you're thinking to yourself, well, if I act dumber, will I get the job? Is that the whole point? (laughs) And you just feel another level of rejection. It can happen in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of different arenas. And we're familiar with that. In fact, research tells us that rejection... Has, it travels the same neurological pathways in our brain as a physiological pain. And so when you feel rejected, you feel physical pain. And there's a reason for that. That in, our, in, in rejection, it not only just has a, a physiological response where we feel actual physical pain through rejection, but it also can and damage and, and hurt us in other ways too, whether that's our self-esteem, where we feel less about ourselves, we, when we find ourselves being rejected with people, what we sometimes tend to do is then say, well, there's over time, a sustained period of time of being rejected, 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 then there's no safe people anymore. And we find ourselves finding ourselves shrinking back deeper, deeper into isolation. With rejection, you can also find yourself in a position of, of, of wanting to act out aggressively. And when you combine um, isolation and aggression, it gets really dangerous, doesn't it? Rejection is one of those things that also doesn't really respond well to reasoning. There's a powerful study that was done where a group of people were put with another group of people, and those, that group of people were um, told to reject them, to constantly reject this one uh, group of people. Then after the study was over, that, that group of people were told, you know, it was a fake, all those people that were rejecting you. We told them to do that. It was just a, a setup, a fake. Guess what? That didn't take away their pain. They still felt rejected by those people and it didn't relieve them of the pain even when they found out that it was all fake. See, interestingly and amazingly, the the solution for rejection is still amazingly acceptance. That's it. That the solution, the greatest healer for rejection in our life is acceptance. And fortunately for us, we have a God who accepts us through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him. We can find acceptance. But he's also someone who's familiar with rejection. Jesus is very familiar with rejection. In in fact, in Isaiah, this is what it says uh, about Jesus. Way before he even came to earth, it says this. It was prophesied he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus understands rejection. He understands it in a deep and profound way. And what I want to do is look at a passage. There's, you know, his whole life and ministry, there's lots of different places and scenarios in which he experiences and faces rejection. But what I want to do is just focus in on one passage that helps us understand 
what Jesus experienced, but also the hope that we can have as we experience rejection as well. And so I want to just highlight that one portion of Scripture with you, and then uh, we'll read it together, and then I want to look at it so we can, we can, get, get, uh, we can benefit from it together. So here's what, here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to, to please stand for the reading of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 all the way down to 35, we're going to read this portion of Scripture where we see Jesus experiencing rejection. Let me just read it for you. It says this. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that they might send him out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to, to, to them he gave the name Bonagers, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, but the, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be, be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. If you will, please, and we'll look at this challenging passage together. <clears throat> now, even as we get to chapter 3 in Mark's gospel account, his account of Jesus, Jesus has, has already been experiencing rejection. He's, um, he's cleansed a leper. He's healed a, a, a man who had a withered hand. He's healed a paralyzed man. He's cast out demons. But even still in the midst of all this, he's, he's experiencing rejection. And it's an interesting thing that Jesus, he's been rising in popularity, so that is crowds are coming around him, but there's also this other side of things where there's conflict that's uh, surrounding Jesus as well. In fact, it, just previous to this, in, in this chapter, chapter 3, um, two groups of people, the, the teachers of the law and the Herodians, they come together and they plot to kill him. It says this in, in uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And this is interesting because this is two groups of people who wouldn't normally come together. You have the religious extremists and the political extremists. And when they get together, that's bad news. And they're coming together and they're saying, we want to plot to kill Jesus. So already there's great conflict and there's resistance and rejection of who he is and what he is doing. 
So the question is, how does Jesus respond to that kind of rejection, that kind of conflict? Well, first thing that we see is he doesn't give up. And so just a helpful just starting point in when we face rejection that is not a reason to give up. Jesus does not give up in the face of conflict, in the face of the crowds that are pressing around him. This is what it says in this verse, verse 13. It says this, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So Jesus is facing conflict. Those are plotting to kill him. And, and he steps aside, goes to the mountain, says, hey, I'm not going to give up in the face of rejection. In, fan, in fact, I'm going to plan for the future. And by planning for the future, he goes up to a mountainside and he calls the apostles to himself. And it says he calls them and they come. Well, who does he call? Verse 14 says this, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And so he appoints 12. Question is, well, why is he appointing 12? Well, part of it is because there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. <clears throat> there's the, uh, the 12 tribes, and, and now God is doing a new thing through Jesus in this period. He's, he's, he's building the church, and so there's the 12 apostles who will help establish and lead the church. And he says, what does it mean for them to be apostles? That is, they're to be with him. That is, first and foremost, to be with him, to be, the, be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, to be connected to him and to be with him. And then he says that they might, he might send them out to preach. Now, the word preach, um, unfortunately, in our culture, has a negative connotation, sadly. In our culture, when you say, I'm being preached at, or you're preaching at me, it's kind of like, stop harassing me. That's, that's kind of how we approach it. So rarely you'll hear me talk about preaching because I don't want people to feel like they're being harassed. But the reality is, uh, the word preach, the Greek word is caruso. It's a beautiful word, word, which means to declare good news. That's what we get to do. We get to declare good news to people, and that's what he's calling them to do. Declare good news. That is that the kingdom is here, the king is here, and he's establishing his kingdom. Then verse 15, and to have authority to drive out demons. So then he authenticates them, and not just be with me and declare this good news, but he authenticates them in terms of their ministry uh, as well. So this is what he does. Now, who are the guys that he calls? It says this in verse 16. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. Let's keep going. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To him he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Um, then Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. So this is the list. And then, of course, last is uh, Judas. He's always the last in all the lists of the apostles. He's the one that stands out. But I'll just, before we talk about Judas for a moment, because I do want to just uh, note that, I do want to just talk for a moment about this list of guys. And we don't have time to go through all of them and give the details for all of them, but I'll just mention this, just to, to note when you see this list of, of, of apostles that he called to himself, that Within this list, within this group, there are um, a lot of family ties. There are brothers who are a part of this group. Two sets of brothers, and there's others that are like, well, they might be a brothers, and they could be father-son scenario. There's brothers. There's also uh, business uh, partners in this, in, this, in this group. There's the first four guys that are brothers. They're also business partners together. So there's work connections but there's also friendships. We see Philip and, and Bartholomew. They're, 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 they're friends here. And, and, and so there's, there's family relations, there's work connections, and there's friend, friendship relationships here. 
And this is important for us to note because when it comes to sharing the good news with Jesus about others, it still comes down to what's the best way to do it? Well, the best way to do it is through family ties, work connection, and friend relationships. That's the best way to share the good news. Those are, when you're saying, well, who am I supposed to share with? Well, the grand opportunity that God is giving you to share the good news about Him with others is through your family relationships, your, your work connections, your friend relationships. That's it. Well, how do they get to church? Guess what? The number one way people get to church, do you know how it is? You ask them. That's right. Thanks, Mark. You, they get invited. The number one reason people come, an invitation. So who in your family connections, who in your work relationships, who in your friendship circles should you be inviting? That's the challenge. That's the encouragement. And I know that for some people, we think to ourselves, well, I'm afraid that they'll reject me. But listen, how much worse would it be that they never hear the good news and have an opportunity to be accepted through faith in Jesus Christ? That's what you have to weigh out. So we have to face that reject, the fear of rejection that we all have at some point, some level, and say the greater uh, need that they have is Jesus. So let me face my fear so that they can have a future with him forever. That's the idea. So who do we need to invite? We see that here pictured. Now, Judas is the last one that's listed here. He's always the last one listed. He's the one that Jesus selected, but that ultimately, we ultimately betrayed him. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what it's like to have someone that you chose, someone you selected, ultimately betray you and, and, and turn their back on you. And that's the rejection that Jesus faces with Judas. Then, let's go to the next verse. It says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So after he selected um, the apostles... He has a meal. He's hungry. He's like, okay, I'm going to have, he's, he's human. He's like, I'm going to go and I want to have something to eat. But there, while he's trying to get a meal, it says a crowd gathered. So he and his disciples were not even able to eat. See, the crowds were certainly gathered around Jesus. In fact, just previous to this, Jesus had told the disciples, hey, can you have a boat ready? Because if the crowds get too thick, we gotta, we got to have some sort of a plan to, to, to kind of not be crushed by it in a certain sense, all the crowds that are around us. That's how popular Jesus was. Um, so this is what's happening in this scenario. People were coming. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear Jesus. They wanted to experience Jesus. Then verse 21 When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So the family, just you're saying, well, they heard of this. What does this mean, they heard of this? Well, Jesus right now is in Capernaum, which is in Galilee. This is his kind of adopted hometown. But if you know where Jesus grew up, he grew up in Nazareth, which is about 30 miles away. And so Jesus is in Capernaum. And he's doing all these things. He's saying all these things. People are, again, there's the crowds and there's the conflict. And word is getting back to family in Nazareth. And the family in Nazareth are starting to get these, hey, what's going on with Jesus question? What's, what's, hap- what's happening with your son? And all of a sudden they're getting these, this, this news and they're thinking to themselves, uh, what is going on with Jesus? What is he doing? He's making these claims. He's doing these things. 
and they're starting to feel um, embarrassed. There's this, there's a sense of, uh, oh, okay, he's this, his, he's reflecting on me, and what does this, what does this mean? And if he's claiming to be Messiah, that's kind of a dangerous thing too, because the Jewish people don't take that too, um, you know, well. If you're claiming to be a false Messiah, you're going to be killed. And so they're thinking, I got to protect Jesus, but I also got to protect myself because this is embarrassing. He's embarrassing the family and our identity. That's what's going on. And we see that because it says this in, the, in this verse. It says, they said he's out of his mind. They think that Jesus has, is gone a little crazy, that he's, you know, one bean short of a burrito, or you might say. It's just, there's something, there's something off here. What's going on? And, and he's claiming to be the Messiah, and he's doing these things. And, and, of course, if someone is claiming to be a Messiah, one of the things that you think at that moment is, maybe he's insane. I met somebody once in Portland who claimed to be the Messiah. Guess what my first thought was? They're insane. That's what, my, that's what I was thinking. And so this is what's happening. They think Jesus is out of his mind. We need to say, protect him. We need to protect our own um, image as, as, as his family. And so that's what's going on there. There's this, a certain sense of rejection that, he's, that, that is already going on with his own family. Then verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. That by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So it's not just Judas, who, a, a close friend who he selected that's going to be rejecting him, and his family who's thinking he's crazy. Now the religious leaders are rejecting him as well. And he, notice here in this verse, they are not denying that Jesus is doing miracles. They are not denying that he's healing people, cleansing lepers. They're not denying the power of Jesus. But what they're questioning and rejecting is the authority of that power, where that is coming from. So it is fascinating. They're scratching, I think. You know, they're going, well, we don't know what to do with this guy who's doing all these things. It's, it's amazing. We can't explain it. So it must be from Satan. That's kind of the idea. So they're scratching. They're trying to come up with some reason why uh, to, to reject him because they've already kind of made up their minds that they, they don't want to accept him. So they said he's possessed by Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So they're saying he's driving out demons uh, with the power of demons. And so Jesus looks at them and he's like, okay, let's think this through, okay? So he kind of presses in with a question. That's what we see in the next verse. It says this. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. And he asks a very reasonable question. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? So he says, just think about this for a moment, guys. How does Satan drive out Satan? So this is the question. And then he gives three illustrations to really press this down even deeper. He begins with a, a secular uh, world of vision uh, perspective. He says this in verse 24, illustration. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So a secular understanding would say, okay, a civil war we all know that civil wars don't build up kingdoms. They destroy kingdoms, right? We know that to be the case. And so he's saying, listen, just think about it in terms of civil war. If there's a kingdom that's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And so why would there be civil war? And this just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Then there's a social illustration. He says, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So if you have members of a household and they're at each other's throats, that household is going to fall apart. And so he's saying, listen, just even socially, we know that to be the case in, in terms of a house. And then in verse 26, there's a, a spiritual illustration. He says, if Satan opposes himself 
and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So he says again, if Satan is working against himself, he's working against his, you know, for his own demise. And it just doesn't make sense for them to say that. Then the next verse. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So Jesus is now saying, just think about it. You, you can't come into a, a, a house like this. He's, he's saying, basically, he's saying it's not Satan's power. He's saying that ha- someone must be here that's greater than Satan. That is, he's in this picture saying Satan is, is uh, illustrated as the strong man. And he's saying someone has come in and tied up the strong man. And the strong man in the house, the possession is the people, those who have been demonized or, or whatever it might be. And someone has tied up the strong man and is setting people free, the possessions that the enemy has. And so it, that's what's going on, that someone stronger than Satan has come, that there's a greater power at work here. And so he's pressing, pressing, and he's pointing them to something greater. He's saying, I'm here. I'm greater than Satan. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a different place than working for Satan, which doesn't make sense. Then verse 28, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Just let that verse sink in for a moment, okay? Because it's powerful and I don't want you to miss it. I just think it's too powerful for us to miss the fact that Jesus says, listen, people can be forgiven all their sins. Just let that sink in for you personally for a moment and every slander they utter. You can be forgiven all your sins and every slander you utter. Jesus is a forgiving God. Isn't that good news? So he stopped. We just can't, can't skip over that. Then verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So when we come to this verse, this is one of those verses that in Christian circles, people are like, oh man, okay, tell me about the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? And they want to treat it in two different ways. One, they're concerned that they've committed the sin of the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, and that it's an unpardonable sin. They'll just be clear right up front. Jesus is not actually even saying that the teachers of the law have committed this sin. You just know that. He's warning them. And in a certain sense, it's just a warning that we need to hear as well. But the other thing is we sometimes want to take this, this concept, this blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, um, this eternal sin that he's talking about, and we want to treat it in this separate way, this separate subject. But what we need to do is take a look at this verse in its context to try to understand what is it that Jesus is actually saying. And so in order to understand it, he's saying, um, by the way, blaspheme is to, to speak against God, to speak against God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And so when we speak against the Holy Spirit, we're speaking against God. And the reason why Jesus says that is because of the next verse. Look at it with me. It says this. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Jesus is casting out demons through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what they're doing is they're speaking against the Holy Spirit and they're saying, well, that is an impure spirit. He's working for the devil. So again, he's speaking against the work of God and saying, well, the work of God must be the work of Satan. And so they're, they're rejecting the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, and they're saying it's from the enemy, from, from the devil. So what they're essentially doing is they're, they're cutting off the very thing that could cause them to turn their life around. 
That is the Holy Spirit's work, the the work of Jesus to help us turn our lives around. And if we reject that and continually reject it, then there's no way for us to come to a full understanding of of our need for repentance and turning to to Jesus in faith. And so Jesus is, is really just simply saying, Listen, if you, if you deny and reject the Holy Spirit, then you miss the very opportunity for you to be saved. And if you can't accept the proof of what I'm doing, no proof will be uh, helpful for you. It's, it's a group of guys who are down at the, at the bottom of a well. And Jesus is saying, I'm lowering the bucket to you. I'm lowering the bucket. But if you keep cutting the rope every single time I lower it down, then it's like at some point, that's your way out. You're, you're missing it. You're not going to, to find your way out if you keep cutting the very, the very thing that I'm giving you so that you can be rescued. That's, that's the idea here. And so he's saying, don't, don't find yourself in this place of continually rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit and, and, denying, and denying Him. So then, verse 31, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in, to call him. So now, after Jesus warns them against rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, he then finds himself with this family who's just showed up, and his family stays outside. Um, and the question is, why are they staying outside? I think it's probably because they're a little embarrassed to go inside, so they send someone else in. And notice here it says mother and brothers. So who's missing here is Joseph. It's likely that Joseph has died by this time, so it's his mothers and his brothers. And some of you are saying, Jesus had brothers? Yes, he did. He had half-brothers, and they grew up with Jesus. And here's the thing. As they grew up with him, they at some point along the way rejected him. They didn't, they didn't see him <clears throat> as the Messiah, as the one who had come. And I think this is a bit of a warning because for all of us who maybe grew up on the inside, that is, his brothers, they grew up with Jesus. That is, they grew up right next to him on the inside and they, they, <clears throat> they became, in a certain sense, overly familiar with holy things, with Jesus. And I think that's a warning for any one of us who's grown up in church, that it's very possible that we can become overly familiar with spiritual things, with holy things, and in a, in a certain sense, kind of become callous to, to them. If you're a church kid, just listen close. It's very possible that you can be become so familiar with spiritual things that you just grow um, kind of cold to it or callous to it. And, and may that not be so, but that we constantly and continually be responsive to who Jesus is and his power and his work in our life. But this is where they're, where they're coming from at this time. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So they tell Jesus, hey, they're here. Your family's here. They're looking for you. Jesus knows that they want to take him away. So he responds by saying this, verse 33. Who are my brother, my mother, and my brothers, he asks. Then verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, just so you know this, Jesus is not against his natural family. We know that Jesus cared very much about his natural family. In fact, when Jesus was dying on the cross, you you remember Jesus looked out and he saw his mother Mary and he looked at the apostle John and says, care for her, Care care for my mother. He cares for his natural family. So don't miss that by this statement. But what Jesus does do is he opens up the door for not just a natural family, but for a supernatural family. 
to take place. And this is the good news for all of us. He says, he looked at them, at the people who were seated around him and said, listen, here are my mother and my brothers. He looks at those around and says, you can be a part of my family. And that's a beautiful thing because he offers and extends to us the, the opportunity to be accepted into his family forever. And then to make that even more clear, in verse 35, he says this, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and, my, and mother. So the question is, well, what is God's will? What is it that God wants us to do? If you're a note taker, you can write down 1 John 3, verse 23. It says this, 1 John 3, 23 says this, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. This is to do God's will, is to believe in the one that he has sent, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in him. But it's not just believing in him, but it's also to then show love to others, to, uh, to care for and love other people, that we love God and that we love others. That's what God's will is for us. When we get this, when we understand that this is what, how we too can enter into God's family. This is the great and grand um, invitation that God makes for in, any and all of us to respond to him and to respond to his will. Now, all that said, the question is, well, how do I apply this? What does this, this passage mean for me? Well, let me just mention a couple of things. First of all, let me say this, that when you face rejection, you can find comfort knowing that Jesus understands. Jesus understands the rejection that you feel, the rejection that you face. Jesus understood rejection at the deepest level in a profound way. From close friends to family to the crowds, he understands rejection. And so he understands your pain. In a, and when you find yourself stuck and facing that challenge, you can turn to him and know that he can walk with you because he gets it. He gets it deeply. And he gets you. And he wants to walk with you. So we can find comfort when we experience rejection through walking with Jesus Christ. But the second thing that we need to take away from this passage is there's a caution. There's a caution, not just that, you know, we are rejected, but that we can reject him. That, that there's a caution here. For each and every one of us to say, I don't want to be uh, so familiar with Jesus that I end up kind of isolating and, re and rejecting his work and what he wants to do in my life. Or you find yourself in a position where you just say, you know what, I'm turning it off. I just, I'm, I'm just shutting down the, the very work that God wants to do in my life through the Holy Spirit. And so there's a, there's a caution for us there too, that we not reject the very one who wants to rescue us, the very one who wants to save us. And then the third thing, the third one is this, that we, we need to recognize that Jesus cares for us. Cares for us that even when we reject him, he hasn't rejected us. And I say this because Jesus really truly knows rejection more than anyone, anyone else in all history. He was, he was born of a virgin, and so he grew up, and everyone knew the story or heard of the story, and they just, you know, they called him illegitimate. And so all of his life, he was rejected. He was looked down upon because of his birth story. And, and when he was born, he, you may remember, had to flee as a refugee to Egypt. And if you think a Jewish person going to Egypt as a refugee is a good thing, you've got to think again. 
He grew up with all sorts of rejection and difficulty. Then he comes back and he moves to a place called Nazareth, which is a little hillbilly town. And he got picked on for where he was was grown up in, in Nazareth. And he was rejected because of that place that he lived. He was rejected by the man he selected, one of the guys he selected, Judas. But it wasn't just Judas that rejected him. Peter, James, John, all of them rejected him. They couldn't stay up for an hour and pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was on the cross, they all fled. Everyone rejected him. It was the crowds, it was the, the Romans, the people that he came, he'd come to save. Everyone rejected him. And the question is, well, Jesus... If everyone is rejecting you, why did you go to the cross? Why would you still go to the cross to die for all the people who were rejecting you? It's because of His grace and His mercy and His love for you and for me. That even when we are rejecting, He's saying, I want to offer myself for you to pay for the penalty of your sin so that through faith in my work, you could be accepted into my family. No longer rejected, but through faith, he invites us to be a part of his family forever. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what he offers you. Comfort when you face rejection. Caution to not reject and to, and to think th- about those, to reach out to those who are in that spot. Not ever stop praying and reaching out and inviting. And then third, know that Jesus cares for you enough to die on the cross so that those who rejected can be ultimately accepted through faith in his work on our behalf. Let's take a moment and let's thank him for that. God, we do want to pause in your presence and just say thank you. Thank you for your clear demonstration of care and love for us. That you experienced so much suffering, so much pain, so much rejection, then and now. And yet it didn't stop you from going to the cross so that we might find forgiveness in life. We thank you for that. God, I pray especially for those here who feel deep, deep rejection in their life, who even just the thought of it brings back real physical and emotional pain. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them Remind them that you're familiar with rejection and that you can and want to walk with them. I pray for healing. I pray for restoration. I thank you, God, that you not only invite us into your family through the work of your son, but that you also give us a church family, a church that you have been working through for thousands of years. And in the midst of our imperfections, in the midst of our own challenges, you work powerfully through your church, through your people. We thank you, God, for the ultimate hope and promise that you will one day bring together a family reunion. All who have placed their faith in you can come together. And in that time, we won't experience rejection, but we'll experience true acceptance, true restoration, true love. God, we thank you for that hope and that promise that's only found in you. In your name, amen.